almost a couple months now, and it's going through a certain book in the Bible. Can anybody tell me where we're at? Mark, the Gospel of Mark. So if you want to turn to Mark chapter 8, that's going to be our main text this morning. But I want to remind you of where we've been on this journey through the Gospel of Mark. Um, we want to do more than just a Bible study. Um, in our Church of Christ background, you know, we've been great at studying the Scriptures uh, but what we want to add to this and what we've tried to do is to follow the example of Jesus. And we think it's important to challenge you along the way. So we've offered what we've called some church-wide challenges. So as we see in the life and the teachings of Jesus, some of the things that he's doing, some of the things that he's teaching, we've challenged you. So we challenge you to spend 15 minutes in quiet time each day a few months ago. Well, we challenge you to memorize some scripture, Mark 4, 1 through 20, and really dive deep into that scripture. And most recently, we challenged you as we studied through Mark chapter 5 uh, to share your story, to write out your story, like your faith journey, or you could call it your spiritual autobiography, to write out where you've come from and why you believe and how God has worked in your life, and to share it with one person. That's been the challenge. And that comes directly from Mark chapter 5 and verse 19, which is up on the screen, where this ex-demoniac that Jesus casts out the demons, uh, he wants to travel with Jesus, and Jesus doesn't let him, and instead he says, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So Jesus tells this man, you stay here, you go to your home, you go to your own people, and just tell them your story. Another word we might use for that is testimony. Tell them how much God has done for you and how he has shown you mercy. And that is the witness for Christ. So when he comes back, people are ready to receive him. So not only do we want you to write out your story and share it with one person, but we want to share our stories you know, with each other. And some of you are doing that with your connect group. Some of you have shared your stories with me, and I've been encouraged by that, just reading your own story and seeing how God has worked in your life. We want to do something special for uh, the first part of the lesson this morning, and we're going to invite a brother in Christ, Cornelio Soria. To, why don't you come up here, Cornelia, and he's going to, uh, Cornelio, he's going to share his story with us. So why don't you join me in welcoming Cornelio as he walks up here. So a lot of you know Cornelio already. Um, I've mentioned that, welcome Cornelio, I've mentioned that he's going to come up here um, throughout this week, and several of you said, oh yeah, I know Cornelio really well, but if you don't know Cornelio, this is him right here. Uh, he worships with our Spanish-speaking congregation, so a lot of you see him in the hallways down here, or maybe you've worked with him, or he's worked on your house some. Uh, so Cornelio, how are you doing today? Good. Doing good. All right, we're going to, usually I come up here and I say turn to wherever just to go ahead and get those initial words out there, so uh, that was a practice to get, you know, okay. there you go, now you're ready. All right, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Tony and myself and, and Leonard, we were at the Riley's house, we sat down at a table and we talked with Cornelio, and he told us uh, his faith journey, his story, um, and so he was willing to share it, and so what we're going to do right now is I'm just going to ask Cornelio, you know, why are you here today, why are you a Christian, how did, how did that come to be? Can affect the people around you and 
<laughs> and well, uh, the, um, my story, the reason I want to be here is because anybody who is a Christian already has some story. But I was thinking if somebody come over, uh, he may help some. Mm -hmm. And it's a story that nobody be, personally I'm not proud of telling this story because uh, I remember when I left, I left home when I was 16 years old and I didn't move just out of town, I moved out of my conscience and just going and met different people most likely you're going to run into the wrong crowd Sometimes you said, well, I, I, can, I can get out of what I'm doing anytime I want to. And I, I remember I had a friend, my wife, sister, husband. We were really good friends. We used to hang out together. One day he called me. And I didn't see him for like four months. And one day he called me. He said, well, I'm going to Mexico. You want to come over with us?
Sunday of 2010. My wife got baptized the second week of 2010. It took me long to And I think it was some, you know, when you do something, I don't know how you don't know how much you come along, but we come over 18 years, so I think we did the right, and I know, I don't think, I know we did the right <laughs> there decision. There And, and uh, through studying the Bible, that's the story of the Apostle Paul, how he become a Christian, Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for coming and sharing your story. Uh, let's thank Cornelio. Uh, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for sharing your story. This You get a glimpse of what it looks like to just write out your story as he did and share it with someone. And not everybody is going to have an awesome accent like that, but it, doesn't, it shouldn't prevent you from sharing your story. So thank you, Cornelio, for, for joining us today. Uh, he said something I thought was very interesting that I've tried to, to mention in these sermons, and that's, we don't all have the same story. Your story is your story, my story is my story, but the point is, how has God worked in your life? How has he shown you mercy? And just like this guy in Mark chapter 5, how can you go and share that with others? So we're going to switch gears for the next few minutes as we look into Mark chapter 8, and I want, to, I want you to think and reflect on this question uh, what do you want Jesus for? What do you like about Jesus? What is it about the life and the teachings of Jesus that you're drawn towards? Now, as you think about that question, also think about what is it about Jesus that you create some distance from him? What about his life and his teachings do you find yourself resisting a little bit? So what do you like about Jesus yeah, and what are you distant from? In Mark chapter 8, which is where we find ourselves this morning, verse 26 and 27, this is the dividing line in the gospel of Mark. This is the pivot point, this is the hinge in all of Mark. So it's kind of like this marathon story. Uh, in Pennsylvania a few years ago, they hosted a marathon, so that's running continuously 26.2 miles. So if you've ever run a marathon or been in a race, you know it takes a lot of preparation you prepare your body, you prepare your mind, and you know, it takes months, maybe even years to get to this place. And once you get to the day of the race, you know, you got to get mentally prepared, you've, you're physically prepared by the food and being hydrated, and once you get going, you need to hit a certain pace, and you're going to go through different spots in the race where uh, you're going to have to push through a wall where you want to quit. So you don't need any more obstacles when you're running a marathon, but this day in Pennsylvania, uh, they came up, and I don't know how well you can see this picture, but they came up on a train. 
the course of the marathon, whoever was brilliant and designed it out, had them crossing over some railroad tracks, and they thought they had everything worked out, all the timing, so no trains would be coming through. But unfortunately, about halfway through the marathon, most of the runners were stopped by a train and just had to wait. It was a long and slow train. One runner was trying to qualify for the Boston Marathon, and at the end of the marathon, he was short by eight minutes. So if you look at his time, why, why didn't he make it? Well, it's because he was stopped by a train. So you look at that race, and there is a clear dividing line in the race. Once that train hits, they kind of have to take a different course. Their timings are all messed up, and, and that's what's happening in Mark chapter 8, verse 26 and 27. It's like the train is coming through. That is the dividing line in Mark, and things are now going to go in a different direction. So far, we haven't looked at every verse. We haven't looked at every story, but maybe you're doing that on your own as you study through Mark. Um, there's really one word, I think, that can describe Jesus in these eight and a half chapters, and that's the word power. Uh, there's this Greek word that's used a few times in those first eight and a half chapters, and it's the word dunamis. And it can mean, uh, you know, miraculous healings or wonderful works, uh, but it could also mean power. I had a Bible professor tell me one time that this word dunamis means sheer, raw, untamed power. So just scan over those first eight and a half chapters in Mark, and you see what Jesus is doing. He he healed a man who has leprosy, and he touched him. He healed a guy who was paralyzed and couldn't walk. He healed a woman who had been bleeding for many years. He was casting out demons like Legion in Mark chapter 5. In Mark chapter 5, he brought a girl back from the dead. And not only was he healing people of their diseases, that takes power to be able to do that. Jesus walked on water, and he calmed the storm. And what we looked at last week, he multiplied food. And fed thousands of people on multiple occasions. That's that dunamis. That's that sheer, raw power that we see in Jesus. All throughout those first eight and a half chapters of Mark. And then you can see the way Mark gives us little summary statements of how the people respond to this power. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 27, collectively the people just say, what is this? It's a new teaching. He has authority. He even has power over these impure Spirit. So the group is just saying, what is this? In chapter 2 and verse 12, after he heals the paralytic, they say, we have never seen anything like this. In chapter 4 and verse 41, after he calms the storm, his own disciples say, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. These are guys that have quit their job and given up everything to follow Jesus, and they're on this boat saying, who is this? In chapter 7, in verse 37, when he's in Gentile territory and he's healing people, the crowd just collectively, as they're amazed, they say he has done everything well. He makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So you can see Jews, Gentiles, all the people basically except for the religious leaders are in awe of the power of Jesus and what he's able to do. But then when we get to Mark chapter 8, verse 27... And following the dividing line, the second half of Mark, the miracles begin to decrease. Not that Jesus loses his power, he still has his power, but this action-packed gospel of Mark slows down a little bit. The miracles decrease, and all of a sudden he starts predicting the cross. 
what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem, the suffering that's going to take place, and the tone of Mark changes. It's like that train comes through and everything is going to change from here on out. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through 35. Let me read that. Verse 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? That could be its own lesson right there. Too many of us, including myself, we spend too much time wrestling with this question. What do people say about me? What do people think about me? And I don't think Jesus is asking his disciples, who do the people say that I am? Because he's worried about it. He has a teaching opportunity, so they respond, and they said, well, maybe John the Baptist, some say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. In verse 29, he asks them, but who do you say that I am? He reverses the question, who do you, probably the 12 right here, who do you say that I am? So Peter speaks up, and he said, you are the Messiah. You're the Christ. That's a turning point in Mark. That's a huge step for the disciples. They know something about Jesus. You know, from chapter 4, they're saying, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. And now they're saying, you're the Messiah. This is the first time this title is used in Mark since Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, since the intro. So it's a big step, even though there's still confusion of what the Messiah really is and what the Messiah is supposed to do, but he knows that. So verse 30 He sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. He's keeping this messianic secret for a little bit longer. In verse 31, this is his first, what we call a passion prediction. His first prediction of the cross. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. What? You know, these guys have given up everything to follow him. They've left their nets and their tax booths behind. And now he's saying, oh, by the way, I'm going to be killed. And they're thinking, wait a minute, don't you have the power to prevent that? So look at how Peter responds in verse 32. Well, first, Jesus, he said this quite openly, so he's not speaking in parables. He's really open about what's going to happen. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You know, their expectations of the Messiah, especially Peter representing the disciples, is you have all this power, you can multiply food in the middle of nowhere, you can bring people back from the dead, you can heal the sick, you have power over nature. What can you not accomplish with that kind of power? They're looking for a Messiah to come and to restore the temple to overthrow the Romans, and what a great military leader Jesus would be with all this power. So Peter has the gall to pull Jesus aside and rebuke him and say, Jesus, we're not going to let that happen to you. You're not going to suffer. You're not going to die. And then we know his response in verse 33. Turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're setting your mind not on divine things but on human things. So he rebukes Peter. Peter, who speaks these words, you are the Messiah, in one conversation. And those words are revealed to him by God. In the same conversation, he speaks words that come from Satan. He rebukes Jesus. And Jesus said, you have earthly things on your mind. In verse 34, he called the crowd with his disciples. He's intentionally including the crowd now. 
And he said to them, if anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake, and for the sake of the gospel, will save it. So this is his first paradoxical teaching. Now, you want to be my disciple, pick up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. If you want to save your life, you need to lose it. You know, what in the world does that mean? If you could summarize the second half of the Gospel of Mark in one word, it would probably be the word surrender. The first half of Mark, you see nothing but the power of Jesus. Sure, he's rejected a few times, but for the most part, he has power. And then all that slows down, and then here he's predicting his death and what's going to happen. And then he's inviting everyone else to follow him and deny themselves, pick up their own cross. If you want to save your life, you need to lose it. And then he keeps going in the following chapters, and he says, you want to be first, got to be last. If you want to be great, you need to become a servant. And then for two or three more times, he's going to predict his suffering. Jesus surrenders his will and what human beings would want him to do to the will of God. The second half of Mark is about surrender. So I'll start with this question, what do you want Jesus for? What do you like about Jesus? Which parts of Jesus are you drawn towards, if you're being honest? Is it the power? What we see in those first eight and a half chapters, sure, we like power. We like the fact that Jesus has the ability to cure us of sicknesses. We like the fact that Jesus can do some amazing things, can perform miracles. Peter liked the power. Peter liked the fact that they could stomp out all their enemies. And as Christians, for about 1,700 years, we've experienced power. In these last few decades, some of the power that we've had as Christians is being stripped away from us. So how are we going to respond? Do we like Jesus for his power or do we like him for his invitation to come and to surrender? To give up your lives, to deny yourself and pick up your own cross. My argument would be that we need both. And most people want Jesus for his power, but not for his invitation to surrender. We need Jesus for his power. I mean, I believe, you know, we have this vision, our seven commitments here in Pine Tree, and we say we want to make, mature, and multiply faithful followers of Jesus. I believe that collectively, through prayer and through what God can do, that he has the power to make a big impact in this community. I believe that. I believe in faith that Jesus has the power to still move and to shake and to make things happen for the kingdom of God. But I also believe this invitation to surrender. That the way to get there is not through dominance. The way to get there is through joining Jesus in this invitation to give up our lives, to surrender our will to God's will. There was a book that came out a few years ago called Touching the Void. It was written by a mountaineer named Joe Simpson, and he was telling a story about a time where he was climbing the Andes Mountains. He was on a really steep incline, very snowy and icy. The rope that he was climbing with somehow was cut loose, and he started falling down the mountain. Somehow in the process, he broke his leg, and he kept falling, and then he fell into this hole, basically, in the mountain. He stopped himself in the crevice of the mountain and reattached himself with a rope. But because his leg was broken and he didn't have the strength to pull himself out, 
He was just stuck there. Nobody was coming to look for him, so he realized after some time he really only had one option. And his option was to lower himself into the hole, into that darkness, with the hopes that somewhere deep down in there, there would be a little ray of sunlight, maybe a hole or a tunnel to climb through on another part of the mountain. But he also knew that if he lowered himself into this crevice, if he lowered himself down into the mountain, and he didn't find a way out, that that was it, that he was going to die down there. So he really only had this one option, and that was to surrender himself to the mountain. Now, obviously, he made it out because he wrote a book about it, so don't worry about him. He, he survived. It was the right choice. But as I read that, I was thinking about this invitation, starting in Mark 8, verse 27 and following, where Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself and pick up your cross. If you want to save your life, you need to be willing to lose it. I thought about that story because Jesus is inviting us to surrender, to surrender our own will, to surrender our need, maybe to always be right, maybe to surrender our desire to get revenge on someone or be vindicated. Maybe it's surrendering our need to look like everybody else and and try to keep up with everybody else around us. You know, I'm not sure what that surrender would be for your life. But the power that we see in Jesus is really on display when he surrenders in the second half of Mark. Then we saw that in Cornelio's story. You know, when his brother-in-law came to pick him up and they were going to go to Mexico and visit for a while, he was ready to go have a good time and then his friend had become a Christian. And he thought, well, that's boring. But what he realized through time is that to surrender himself to God was the best way possible. The power of Jesus is on full display when he surrenders himself to the cross. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul picks up on this same idea. And Paul said the cross of Christ is foolishness to the world. It was foolishness to Peter and to the other disciples. Why go and willingly die? But what Paul says is the cross is actually the power of God. And the invitation that Jesus extends at this part in Mark is to surrender. And there's actually power in surrender. So I don't know where you're at in your life right now, but we're going to sing a few more songs. And we're going to have shepherds around this room. And and whether or not you're ready to become a Christian or you just need to speak with an elder privately or spend some time praying or maybe set up a time uh, to meet with elders later on this week, whatever that may be. And we invite you to really think about that. And let's stand and continue singing.